Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, August 16th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, we've got a couple of earnings reports to dig into. We've got a listener question regarding a recent acquisition in the REIT space, and we'll have a couple of stocks for you to watch this coming week. Joining me, as always, it's Certified Financial Planner. I guess maybe he's back from Orlando. I don't know. Maybe he'll shed a little bit of light on this, but it's Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? I am. Me and the dogs are back in our own house, and uh, uh, the, the one that just heard me say that and got up, but hopefully he will <laughs> let us have a nice, quiet show this week because he's in his, his own home. Well, that's all right. We we never hold that against uh, never hold that against our our pups, right? Uh, but it, it it was a good trip to Orlando. The family had a good time. Oh yeah, that was our first time actually staying in the house since we bought it uh, a few months ago. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a great time. Beautiful weather, good good pool days. It was nice. Nice, good deal. Good to hear. Well, hopefully you had a chance over the weekend to dig into some of these earnings reports, Matt, because we have a couple of companies that we want to get to today that are in our universe here. And we'll start it off with Boston Omaha. Boston Omaha, obviously a, a business we talked about on the show before, one that a lot of listeners are interested in. And, you know, Matt, I love looking down this earnings report because you see billboard rentals, broadband services, insurance commissions. I mean, it, it's a fun answer when someone asks you what this company does. <laughs> um, how did how did the quarter how did the quarter look to you? Well, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of the same issues we have in evaluating Berkshire Hathaway's earnings. Remember, we did that last week because they're kind of secretive about a lot of it, just like Berkshire is. Like um, they release their earnings on like you know random times. You never know when their earnings are going to come out, and it, they you, we don't know what's in their stock portfolio, which is a lot of their their business. Um, they're small enough, unlike Berkshire, that they don't have to tell us at all what's in it. Um, you know, Berkshire has to report every quarter what their holdings are, which we'll actually get later today. Um, but having said that, what we do know looks pretty good. Um, you mentioned Billboard uh, revenue was up. Uh, Billboard's by far the biggest operating business they have. It's roughly 56% of the total revenue they make. So that's a, it's important to pay attention to that number because that's, you know, the big chunk of it. Um, broadband service more than tripled year over year. But take that with a grain of salt because it includes an acquisition they closed in December. So to one of their two major broadband operations wasn't in their company last year at this time. So, But, I mean, that's a business they're planning on building out. Um, grow, excellent margins, 85% gross margin in the broadband services. Um, so, you know, excellent business to be building out. And I'm curious to see where that goes in the in the quarters ahead. Uh, bottom line earnings doubled year over year, but take that also with a grain of salt because it includes uh, unrealized investment gains, kind of like Berkshire's, um, you know, the fluctuations in the stock portfolio. But book value, which is a measurement that they actually pride themselves on, um, the CEO's bonus structure is actually based on their ability to, inc- to grow book value. Um, book value grew by 28%, not year over year, but from December 31st. So, in the past six months, the book value per share is up 28%. Wow. Uh, pretty, pretty impressive growth. Um, and this was before they announced uh, Yellowstone's SPAC deal that we talked about. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Remember, that was announced in early August. So that's that has absolutely no nothing to do with these numbers. 
Um, just, you know, great numbers all around. They have a lot of cash to put to work. We saw that they have about $57 million in cash, another $132 million in treasuries that they could use to invest, buy other companies, things like that. Um, the stock portfolio has gone up tremendously. A lot of that's the DreamFinders Homes IPO that took place earlier this year. Um, and cash flow is their they're operating cash flow is up to, um, from 1.3 million a year ago to 5.3 million now, so about quadrupled in the you know their their cash flow. So pretty impressive quarter all around. Like it's, there's a lot that we don't know about their business, and I mean to be fair, I think the fact that they don't have to disclose their stock holdings at all gives them a nice competitive advantage. Yeah. Um, but. You know, they're kind of a, a mysterious conglomerate in the same sense as the Berkshire Hathaway is, and that they they really tell us only what they have to. You know, no earnings call like we talked about uh, with Berkshire, no earnings call, no shareholder letter, no, none of that. Just here's your 10Q and have a nice day. Now, why why is it that they don't need to disclose the their the stocks that they own? What I mean, what typically that's something. I mean, it seems like a company they're trying to build this out in, the, in sort of the Berkshire Hathaway mold, and certainly seems like they're off to a good start. But why why aren't we able to get that information? Well, I'm, I'm blanking on the exact threshold, but it has to do with the size of the company. Boston Omaha is a pretty tiny company. Um, they, I mean, they obviously have to disclose the Dreamfinders acquisition because it was such a big deal this past year. Um, but other than that, the other other fifty million or so of stocks they own. Um, I'm not sure the exact threshold, but when you look for like Berkshire or Markel, um, they have to re- you know itemize their stock holdings once a quarter, and it's because of the size of the company. And as Boston Omaha grows, it will eventually have to to disclose them. And if it gets to that point, that'll be a good problem to have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it feels like that's almost inevitable. So it's just a matter of when, not if. Um, assuming they they keep doing what they've been doing, because uh, it's obviously working. Through, through just a, a cursory glance at the numbers, for sure. It, it. I mean, like I can't find anything to be upset about it this quarter. Well, hey, that that's a good kind of quarter. I mean, listen, I, I go through reports. I mean, the first thing I'm looking for is red flags, and if you don't find them, well, that that makes it a lot easier to to really dig in and, and find the stuff you're looking for. So, no red flags here. I'm sure investors love to hear that, and so we'll uh, continue to follow this one and look forward to. Uh, hopefully a, a productive, uh, productive and good, good investment idea here. Um, okay, so Latch, another business we've covered here on the show. You've spoken with the CEO of the business, uh, Luke Schoenfelder. We had we had an interview with Luke here on the show, not all that long ago. Latch uh, earnings also came out uh, recently here, and a little bit of a little bit of a reaction to the stock, uh, and, and that really seemed to me. To be more um, related to the guidance revision, but but I'll let you talk more about that. What what stood out to you in this quarter for Latch it's, it's the guidance revision and the general just kind of spac pessimism going on right now. Um, pretty much any company that went public through a spac is is tanking right now. Not necessarily because of anything wrong with their business. Um, and when you look at the numbers, this is another one where it's tough to find anything other than maybe that guidance revision to be that upset about. Um, bookings, which is, as we've said, the, the number that you want to pay attention to, is up 90, uh, it was about 96 million, up uh, just over 100% year over year. Um, annual recurring revenue, which is a big, big part of any subscription driven business, up 122% year over year. The revenue figure itself is only $9 million, which 
for any company that's trading in the billions. It sounds very, very low on the surface. And they're, they're not profitable, which no one expected them to be for, for years. Um, if you're, you know, you're doubling your, your bookings year over year, no one really cares what you're earning uh, at, that, at that point. At some point, people will. But um, so bookings are the number to pay attention to because that's, like I said, when they're, they're installing their, pro- their product in a multifamily building. That takes years to develop. So you want they, they book it when it's still in its early stages. Um, a couple of hi- highlights going on. And then there's one thing I really wanted to point out about Latch's revenue. Um, so first, I want to get your take on this. They hired, they got their SPAC money um, early in June. Um, remember, their SPAC deal was completed. So toward the end of the quarter, they just reported. One of the first things they did, they hired a chief marketing officer for the first time. And tell me what you think of this resume. Former senior vice president of Endeavor um, and the global former global head of content and lifestyle strategy at Apple. I've heard of Apple. I've heard of Apple. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, up and comer, I understand, in the tech space. Uh, yeah, I mean, in all seriousness, I mean, yeah, that, that, sounds, like, that sounds like a pretty pretty rich work history. Right. So and they, they're the, the half billion dollars or so they got as part of the SPAC deal isn't reflected in the, this quarter's numbers, which is one big thing to keep in mind. But let, I mentioned their revenue is only $9 million. So check this out. 80% of that was from hardware. You know, the locks and stuff like that they sell for the, the smart homes. They made $7.2 million in revenue for from hardware the cost of that revenue was over $8 million. So they lost money on hardware. Net, right. So they're loss leaders. Negative 11% profit margin, that, that works out to. On the software side, they did $1.8 million from software. So not a ton yet. That only cost them $173,000. That's a 90% gross margin. <laughs> right now, it's a tiny part of the business. But the idea is that the more hardware they sell the more software subscriptions they'll sell on a recurring basis. This is why I mentioned that annual recurring revenue. And that's the real number to watch is their mix of revenue that's coming from software. Because once software gets to the point where it's more than hardware, that's when you're going to see a real path to profitability from this business. Yeah, that I mean, you're right. I mean, that's the inflection point. That's what everybody waits for with these types of businesses. And it is just a matter of I mean, it, particularly with with a company like Latch, because it came public so much earlier than it normally would have, you just got to be a little bit more patient with it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't expect them to, you know, be a ten bagger overnight. But I mean, they they have potential, and and like I said, that software is the high, very high margin business, and it's a sticky business because it only works with their proprietary hardware. Well, yeah, and so I wanted to get to that for a minute because, you know, that is, we, you see sort of the walled garden versus the non-walled garden approach, and it seems like with Latch, I mean, what, what, what is the big challenge there? What's a big, what's a big threat to this business? I mean, is it just adoption? Is it not getting people to buy into that hardware? More people out there wanting to go the, the open route versus the sort of walled garden approach? Well, it's adoption, it's marketing, it's being able to sell on a large scale, which they haven't been able to do. They just launched their direct sales um, channel this quarter um, as part of the you know their SPAC proceeds. So they couldn't sell to like you know a, a large apartment developer, uh, for example, like for for all of their properties, which now they'll be able to. Um, there is competition risk. There's another company called Smart Rent that's also going public through through SPAC. 
that's a smart home operating system as well, but they don't use proprietary hardware. They integrate with, say, Ring products or Honeywell thermostats or things like that. They don't have their own hardware, so it's a lot easier for customers to switch. Um, remember when we had Luke on the show, he, he mentioned that Latches never turned to customer. And a big reason is because their hardware only works with their software. Um, so it, it makes it really tough to switch. So even if th- there's a lot of competition, it's those businesses aren't as sticky. Um, now, having said that, I could see one of the big tech giants that has hardware operations in smart home, like like Google, which has Nest, or like Amazon, which has Ring, you know, uh, buying one of these operating system companies. And that could be a big competitive threat, um, assuming it's not Latch that they actually buy out. Um, but there, there, there is co- competitive threats, but Latch, for the time being at least, is the stickiest uh, business in, in its space. Well, we got a listener question here from at Matt underscore invests on Twitter. And uh, Matt asks, would love to hear your thoughts on the Monster VICI Properties acquisition of MGM Growth Properties. I like the merger, but VICI stock performance says different. Matt, you've taken a look at this deal. What did you see? Well, first of all, one, one kind of key concept for investors to know is that when one company acquires another, what happens nine times out of 10 is that the acquisition happens at a premium, which we saw here. They're paying a premium for MGM growth properties. And so the, the, the target stock goes up, but the acquirer's stock tends to dip, at least at first. There are exceptions, like when Square announced it was acquiring Afterpay, Square went up. But generally, the acquirer goes down a little bit. So keep that in mind um, whenever you see an acquisition like this. Um, I love this acquisition from a strategic standpoint. Uh, it essentially means that Vici Properties is going to own the Las Vegas Strip. <laughs> um, if you're not familiar, MGM Growth Properties spun out of MGM Resorts um, a few years ago for the purpose of owning a lot of their assets. They own the Mirage, the MGM Grand, the Mandalay Bay. They own a lot of their regional assets, like the National Harbor that's near you. Um, they own the Borgata in Atlantic City. That's an MGM Growth Properties uh, property. Uh, Vici was spun out of Caesars. So it's essentially the same business just coming out of the other gaming leader. It was spun out of Caesars in 2018. They own Caesars Palace in Vegas. They own another, uh, the Harrah's on the Las Vegas Strip. And they own a lot of regional assets. And they're in the process of buying the Venetian, which was the uh, the formerly owned by Las Vegas Sands, which is also on the Strip. So the Las Vegas Strip is essentially made of three companies' casinos, MGM, Caesars, and Venetian. So now VG Properties is going to own a big portfolio of regional assets, the biggest landowner in history on the on the Las Vegas Strip. Um, this is going to create the biggest experiential real estate investment trust ever, uh, roughly $45 billion of real estate's involved in this deal. Um and there's a lot of there's scale advantages to be had of controlling that much land in in one area. Um, they see financing synergies. Uh, Vici has better credit than uh, MGM Growth Properties. Sees an opportunity to to refinance its debt at a lower rate because um, it's acquiring it for 17.2 billion and about a third of that is debt. Um, so that's a a big potential uh, catalyst going forward. And they're also getting MGM's properties, although they're paying a premium for based on the stock price, they're getting the properties for a discount to replacement cost, which is a big benefit if you're in the, the development space. Um, just to name one example, um, MGM Growth Properties acquired MGM Springfield up in Massachusetts uh, earlier this year 
for $400 million. That property cost almost $550 million to, to build. So they got a big discount to that. So VG estimates that on the aggregate, they're getting a 30 to 40% discount to replacement cost for all of MGM Growth Properties' assets. So there's a lot of strategic benefits to this deal. I'm a, I'm a fan of both companies. Like I said, they're essentially the same business. Just one came from MGM and one came from, came from Caesars. Um, so it, it's, it makes sense. I mean, I can't name an acquisition that would have made more sense for either company. <laughs> well... Well, let's let's hope that answered Matt's question because it certainly feels like any questions I had regarding the deal, you certainly answered Matt. So thanks for digging <laughs> into that. Of course, uh, Matt. Before we take off, let's give our listeners a couple of stocks to watch. What uh, what's a stock you've got your eyes on this week? Um, I'm going to go healthcare and watch 23andMe, which is a recent SPAC IPO. Remember that went public through Richard Branson's uh, SPAC Virgin Acquisition Corp. Um, that acquisition recently completed, so M- or 23andMe has $770 million of cash on its balance sheet right now. Um, it just announced its earnings. They were underwhelming, to be honest, um, but didn't include any of the growth that could be fueled by the SPAC money. Um, 23% revenue growth year over year, which remember, they sell a consumer product primarily. They sell the the genetic testing kits. Um, and so their business is rebounding nicely over the, the pandemic. Um, the real potential in this business going forward is its proprietary, proprietary genetic information, which it now has 11.6 million genotyped individuals in its database. Um, and it's got a partnership with GlaxoSmithKline where it, it splits any revenue from, from treatments developed from its information 50-50. Uh, one therapeutic is in phase one clinical trials right now. One is in preclinical trials. And there's no telling how many possibles are coming down the pipeline in the future. And if any healthcare investor could tell you, um, I wish I had Brian Arelli still on to weigh in on this, but any any healthcare investor could tell you that one successful drug could be worth more than 23andMe's entire market cap right now, which is in like the $3 billion range. Um, so a lot of potential here, still early stage, like we mentioned with Latch went public probably earlier than they otherwise would have if there was if the whole SPAC boom hadn't happened. Um, but it's trading at a big discount to earnings, and that's mine, 23andMe. All right. Well, I'm going to be digging a little bit more into SoFi, another company we talked about on the show here before. Uh, earnings for SoFi came out recently. There were good results. Management exceeded their own expectations. Uh, members up to $2.6 million. Uh, that was up 113% from a year ago, and it also represented the eighth consecutive quarter of accelerating growth. And that, to me, is really, you know, that's that's important because I think this is a coming, this is sort of, this is just the shaping this financial services for an entire new generation, these companies like SoFi, um, bringing everything under that one umbrella, so to speak. You can do so much um, for a business that really just started out in the lending side, right? I mean, the lending segment revenue was up 47%. Uh, financial services rev- uh, segment revenue grew 600%. Um, lending is, is the primary part of the business today. But, I mean, you can see with the strength there and the products and the members and, and the cross-selling that comes from that, I mean, the acquisition costs just go down considerably the longer these relationships last. And uh, so, to me... I, there's just there's a lot of potential for a business like this, and uh, in in one that is built 
uh, on on a digital backbone, so to speak. I mean, they do a lot of a lot of good uh, things with the data that they get. I mean, that data we talked about with Square, for example, Square being able to make uh, smart loans to their customers based on all of the data they get from their customers using that that hardware and software. SoFi is doing a similar thing. I mean, they're taking that that data using artificial intelligence machine learning, uh, and, and really using that data to make the best lending decisions possible. And it seems like it's working out for them. So uh, another one that, yeah, came came public probably way earlier than it normally would have, thanks to the SPAC boom. And so uh, you probably probably see some, some uh, bumps along the way here for this one. But uh, one that I think uh, you and I both agree has, has a, uh, a very promising future. So I'll be digging uh, more into SoFi this coming week just to learn more about that business. Uh, but Matt, I think that's going to do it for us this week, uh, as always. Uh, just thank you so much for jumping on the show here and uh, glad you got back from Orlando safely. Glad to be back and I will see you next week, same time, same place. All right, sounds good. Remember, folks, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 